Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hi, Karen. How are you? I am great. It's nice to hear from you. Yeah, time for another podcast today. So what I'm going to talk about is the whole issue of infant sleep and nighttime feeding. I'm sure we'll generate a little discussion between us. Those of us who are listening are often asked by families whether adding rice cereal to a bottle or starting foods early would help their baby sleep through the night. And so I thought this was a great study because I am always looking for data to back up what I have to say about these topics. So this study was done by Amy Brown and Victoria Harries in the United Kingdom and is entitled Infant Sleep and Nighttime Feeding um, During Later Infancy Association with Breastfeeding Frequency, Daytime Complementary Food Intake, and Infant Weight. And this was published um, in the Breastfeeding Medicine Journal, Volume 10, Number 5, in 2015. So the authors state in the background that it's considered biologically normal for infants to wake up at night. Thank goodness they say that. <laughs> they have a... Allison, um, Allison Stubbe says, it's a feature, not a glitch. Right, there you go. That's perfect. I love that. They have a biological um, predisposition really do, to wanting to be close to their moms um, and as a safety feeling, as do all mammals. And many of us talk about how puppies and kittens never end up in a separate box. They're always like crowded together, either with their mom or at least piled up together. And in addition, young mammals have a, a need for frequent suckling. In addition, lighter sleep with more frequent awakenings um, is, appears to be protective against sudden infant death in young infants. So um, in, besides what the authors state about this, I would personally add that frequent feeding at night seems to make sense biologically because it helps to uh, maintain mom's milk supply. And once she starts going many hours at night without feeding or at least getting up to pump, like more than seven hours at night, from my experience, her menses um, is going to return earlier, causing a drop in milk supply, therefore um, an increased risk of having her menses come back and then um, becoming pregnant. Well, I think I said that twice about her menses coming back. But yes, then she'll, she can be, become pregnant earlier, which is a coup to the, to the milk supply. Um, but at three to four months, a lot of parents start to wonder whether or not it's still okay um, or normal for infants to wake up at night to feed. And there's some evidence that in the 1950s, doctors were advising families that babies should stop waking up at that age, which is probably the reverberation in the culture where we see um, people saying that their doctors told them that it's now time at three to four months to have their babies cry it out at night. Um, many studies show that nighttime um, waking from 6 to 12 months is also common and also should be considered normal. 
And in some some studies have been done on this already, showing that nighttime wakening occurs for anywhere from 30 to 60 percent of babies between six and 12 months. But the problem is that par parents feel pressured to get their babies to sleep all night. So oftentimes um, they feel like failures, and I think it's because they're comparing themselves to other parents. So a lot of parents end up trying the cry it out techniques, and others will try um, giving more salads or giving salads early or adding rice cereal to bottles or adding formula at night before bed. I think that a lot of parents are comparing their themselves to other friends who are saying their children are sleeping. And I think a lot of those people are lying. Right. I think they're lying or they just have babies who are the future bedwetters of, Amer of America. <laughs> <laughs> they sleep so well. Yeah. Um, so the evidence shows... Um, in the first six months of life, that formula-fed babies really do wake up less at night to feed than breastfed babies. Um, so breastfed babies are having more uh, frequent feedings at night, which leads to more awakenings. And the authors say that this is probably due to the fact that formula takes longer to digest. Um, I would add that formula-fed babies tend to have larger volumes at one time, and they don't eat as often, so they can actually, they're satiated longer. Um, than uh, breastfed babies. But again, that's an increased risk for a sudden infant uh, death syndrome. But after six months, some studies show that breastfeeding babies wake up more to feed and that they eat more often at night. But other studies um, show, show that there is no difference. And so this is something that the authors um, were looking at to try to sort out. In addition, there are studies that show that breastfeeding mothers actually get more sleep at night than mothers who are formula feeding. So the question in the study is how often should we expect six to 12 months old, six to 12 month olds to wake up at night? Um, and who feeds more at night, breastfeeding babies or formula feeding babies? And um, they sought to find out whether solids play a role um, in sleeping at six to 12 months. So in this study, the mothers were recruited through mother baby groups in the United Kingdom, and they were asked to fill out a survey on infant sleep and feeding during that six to 12 month postpartum range. So they were asked questions like, how long did they breastfeed? When did they add complementary foods? Um, how many meals of solid foods they gave a day? And how often did they give milk feedings, whether those are breastfeeds or bottles of formula? And then they asked how often the babies were waking up at night and how often they fed at night. So those are two separate, very, very important to understand that they asked about how often do they wake up and how often do they actually feed at night. So the, the study population was um, 715 moms and they ended up being pretty well to do. They were um, for the most part highly educated. The majority of moms owned a home, were professionals and were married. So we have to keep in mind that that's um, a different population than the majority of the world. It's in the 1%, as a matter of fact. <laughs> um, you know what you said a second ago about the difference between babies waking up at night and babies eating at night. I right. find that if I'm not careful, when I ask families about what their babies do at night, they will say, my baby sleeps through the night, even if they're waking up for a feeding or two. They won't necessarily count that. Right, especially especially if they're co-sleeping. Mm -hmm. they, right, absolutely. Um, so anyway, so this in this study, they found on average that uh, the babies, these babies again between 6 and 12 months, woke up 1.76 times at night. So somewhere, on, so the majority of babies woke up one to two times in the middle of the night. 
And the average number of nighttime feedings were 1.4. So that means that babies were not always fed when they woke up. Um, in other words, another way of saying this is that nearly 75% of babies woke up at least once at night, and more than 50% of these babies received a nighttime feeding. Um, they found that the number of nighttime feedings and the nighttime awakenings did decrease as the baby aged. So again, they only looked between 6 and 12 months. So by the time they were 12 months, they could definitely see that the number of nighttime awakenings were decreasing. They found that on average, the babies took five milk feedings a day with a range of one to nine. And the mothers who were breastfeeding were, were giving their babies more either breast milk or nursing more often than those who were formula fed. They didn't see any association between the frequency of daytime milk feedings and the frequency of nighttime feedings or nighttime awakenings. Um, there also was no difference in the nighttime awakenings or nighttime feedings um, between babies who are breastfed or formula fed. So, you know, this whole idea of going right to formula because babies are waking up to nurse doesn't uh, necessarily change their frequency of nighttime awakenings or nighttime feedings. The number of complementary food meals per day was not associated with the number of nighttime awakenings, but it was associated with nighttime feedings. So the amount of salads that the babies ate during the day did not reduce the frequency that the baby woke up, um, but they were less likely to eat at night the more food that they, that they received. So overall, this means, this data means that it is common for babies to wake up and feed at night after six months of age. And as the babies age, they woke up less and fed less at night. So if, to, in my mind, if more than 50% of infants do something, I would call it normal. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's, it's like 75%, as a matter of fact. In addition, it's important for families to know that weaning after six months does not stop the nighttime awakenings, nor, um, and uh, weaning after six months does not stop the nighttime feedings either. In fact, breastfeeding baby, breastfeeding babies are probably easier to put back to sleep so that breastfeeding mothers actually get more sleep because since it doesn't matter if they're breastfeeding or bottle feeding, how many nighttime feedings are having at night, the breastfeeding moms are going to get those babies back to sleep faster than a mother or a father who has to get up, make a bottle, warm it up, feed the baby in a rocking chair, and then put the baby, you know, back to sleep. Mm -hmm. um, for babies who delay the for families who delay the introduction of salads during the day, they might find that their babies want to eat more at night. So that would be a reason, you know, to sort of continually, you know, um, offering salads. I find that some families in my practice um, really want their babies to have a lot of breast milk. And so they will um, not really um, sort of make time or put energy into making those meals available. Um, but on the other hand, if they're not waking up at night to eat, maybe that's not a big deal. However, um, the other thing to realize from this study, from this data, is that stuffing 6 to 12-month-olds full of calories during the day is not going to keep them from waking up at night. So we don't want to, you know, add in like really high-calorie foods, um, extra food at night or before bed because they're still going to wake up. Um, nevertheless, they're not necessarily going to eat. But, in, but really what we should be doing is following those infant feeding cues, give the number of solids that are appropriate, um, for, you know, according to the infant's desire so that we don't induce um, obesity. 
And lastly, I would just say that I think it's important to use this data to reassure parents that they're not bad parents if babies wake up um, at night after six months of age, and just to reassure them that that reassure them that their babies are in the population that are more normal, um, uh, that are you know most commonly going to wake up and uh, and feed, and that the baby and if they're comparing themselves to families where the babies don't wake up to feed at night, they're comparing themselves to babies that do something that's a little bit less common to sleep throughout the night. Um, yeah, and I think this is good information to share with families, you know, at like four months, because at four months, they're, you know, you, you know you're already talking about solids, and they may start to question, you know, I think it is true, according to what the authors are saying, that at three to four months, families are starting to wonder, well, when should I be expecting them to sleep through the night? And this is what so-and-so says, and this is what so-and-so says. And if we can reassure them that, that that we can expect those babies to wake up at night beyond six months, don't worry about it. It's normal. Um, maybe that would actually calm parents down a bit. Uh, the authors make mention that uh, fam that mothers who are dealing with postpartum depression, that one of the uh, contributing factors is the baby waking up a lot at night because they feel like they're just not good parents. There's a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. I know to be perfect, have a good job, make a lot of money, be thin, exercise, and your baby sleeping throughout the night. <laughs> One more thing. Yeah. I mean, I think really it's amazing when you're starting out as a parent how you do, you worry about so many things, and then later on you look back and you go, wow, that really wasn't a big deal. Nobody cares what diapers I'm using. Nobody. Exactly. Know, right. Exactly. Yeah. That was great. Okay, well, um, I wanted to talk about a new study, but before we do, I wanted to briefly um, just review a study that came out a few years ago, and they're both related to the use of dextrose gel um, for neonatal hypoglycemia. And so in um, December of 2013, in The Lancet, um, Deborah Harris and her colleagues published an article titled Dextrose Gel for Neonatal Hypoglycemia, the Sugar Babies Study, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. And as we know, neonatal hypoglycemia is common. 5 to 15% of healthy babies experience it, and it is a preventable cause of brain damage. So while dextrose gel is used um, frequently in children and um, older children and adults to reverse hypoglycemia, Little evidence exists for its use in babies, or it did previous to this study. So in the study, the authors aimed to assess whether treatment with dextrose gel was more effective than feeding alone for reversal of neonatal hypoglycemia in at-risk babies. To do that, they did a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. This was at a tertiary care center in New Zealand um, in between 2008 and 2010, they took babies from 35 weeks gestation to 42 weeks who were younger than 48 hours old and were at risk of hypoglycemia. They randomized those babies and they either received 40% dextrose gel, um, 200 milligrams per kilo, or a placebo gel when they were hypoglycemic. And the randomization was stratified by maternal diabetes and birth weight. 
The primary outcome was treatment failure, defined as blood glucose concentration of less than 2.6 millimole per liter, which is approximately 46 milligrams per deciliter. Um, and that was failure after that concentration occurred after two treatment attempts. So initially they enrolled 514 babies and 47% of those became hypoglycemic and were randomized. The dextrose gel reduced the frequency of treatment failure compared to placebo. It was 14% in the treatment group and 24% in the um, placebo group. There were no serious adverse effects reported. Um, of note, there were three babies, which was 3% of the placebo group, which had one blood glucose concentration of 0.9 millimoles per liter or 16 uh, milligrams per deciliter. And no other advent, adverse events took place. Was this done in the United States? Because how did they get IRB approval to, to not treat hypoglycemia? Well, they were still treating it in the standard way where they were feeding. And so the first, your, the answer is no, it was in New Zealand. Okay. But they had their standard protocol of putting the baby to the breast or giving formula, and they administered this glucose gel in the buccal mucosa prior to doing that feeding. I see. Okay. And then just as in, you know, our newborn nursery, they, they feed the baby and then they recheck it, and then they would see whether or not they had failed. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, and if you, you know, for our listeners who are interested in, in reading more specifics of that study, it's very interesting. But I just wanted to give that background because it's really the, it was the impetus for this next study that I want to talk about that came out very recently. And um, this is a study by Catherine Bennett and her colleagues um, in Chicago. It was published um, in the February to March 2016 Nursing for Women's Health Journal of the, um, it's the Journal of AWAN. And the study was titled, Implementing a Protocol, Using Glucose Gel to Treat Neonatal Hypoglycemia. Basically, the authors say, because neonatal hypoglycemia is a leading cause of infant admission to the NICU, um, they were motivated to take a deeper look at alternative protocols for the treatment of neonatal hypoglycemia. And the treatment protocol described by Harris in 2013 in the study I just mentioned inspired them to develop an algorithm based on the oral administration of 40% glucose gel. This safe and effective intervention resulted in a 73% decrease in NICU admissions for the diagnosis of neonatal hypoglycemia over a 14-month period. And it also more fully supported exclusive breastfeeding and mother newborn bonding. And that about blew my socks off, so I was like, I must read this article. <laughs> so um, for anybody who's interested in this topic and wants to do a journal club on it, I really like this article. I'm not going to go through every single thing in it, but even just, you know, every once in a while we see an email that comes across one of the listservs that, we on that, that we're on that says, can somebody please send a summary of the evidence for why, you know, breastfeeding is worth supporting. And I thought the authors did a really fantastic um, job in sort of summarizing briefly the evidence of the benefits of breastfeeding for moms and babies and um, talking about the risks of formula. And it's, it's really nice. But briefly, um, 
Historically, determining evidence-based protocols for the treatment of neonatal hypoglycemia has been difficult because of a lack of clinical evidence defining pathologic glucose levels in neonates in the first hours of life. And in 2011, in an effort to address the lack of agreed-upon treatment protocols for neonatal hypoglycemia, the American Academy of Pediatrics published new management guidelines. And these were necessary because, as the AAP expl explained, the generally adopted plasma glucose concentration that defines neonatal hypoglycemia for all infants, which is below 47 milligrams per deciliter, is without rigorous scientific justification. We know when it comes to fetuses, fetal glucose levels are dependent upon maternal glucose supply and placental transfer with a low end normal value of about 50 milligrams per deciliter. A physiological decrease in glucose levels occurs after birth because the umbilical cord is cut and continues for the first two to three hours of life. And some studies in 2009 by Hay found that levels as low as 23 um, milligrams per deciliter are found in healthy breastfed infants. Others found that levels of 30 are common in healthy neonates during the initial one to two hours of life. After this temporary decrease, glucose levels in healthy neonates soon increase to 40 to 60 milliliters per deciliter. And the only documented cases of neurological damage have occurred when glucose levels have dropped to low levels for many hours. For example, blood glucose levels that fall below 10 milligrams per deciliter for more than 12 hours have been shown to cause neurological damage, including seizures, psychomotor disturbances, um, leading to learning defects, cerebral palsy, and mental retardation. And so the AAP set the new threshold for intervention at 25 milligrams per deciliter, which is more aligned with case studies than the widely accepted 47 milligrams per deciliter threshold. However, these guidelines have not been universally implemented. And the author said that within their system, um, the protocols remained at higher thresholds and possibly because of a lack of confidence in the dramatically lower numbers. And I've also found this at several institutions that I've worked at in the time since the new um, guideline from the AAP has come out. Um, some physicians are hesitant to embrace them. Paradoxically, in some instances, the new guidelines have led to an increase in NICU admissions because the AAP recommendation was to administer IV glucose to infants who sustain a blood glucose level of less than 25 milligrams per deciliter for more than one hour. And so at facilities where they're using the higher cutoffs, but they're using this recommendation to administer intravenous glucose, um, babies generally get admitted to the NICU for that procedure. Um, then the authors talk a bit about supporting exclusive breastfeeding, the benefits of breastfeeding, and um, the relationship between treating neonatal hypoglycemia, which is often done by giving either IV glucose or oral formula, and um, its effects on breastfeeding. In their population, of the almost 1,500 women studied, 85% stated prenatally that they had an intention to continue exclusive breastfeeding for at least three months. However, only 32% accomplished that goal. And the researchers found that the most influential practice supporting the continuation of exclusive breastfeeding at home was having relied exclusively on breast milk in the hospital. So um, 
they went on to talk a little bit about how they implemented their protocol. They created a um, team which was really within their newborn advisory committee, and they created a protocol algorithm to standardize the care and treatment of neonates at risk for hypoglycemia. These include neonates who are small for gestational age, large for gestational age, preterm, or born to women with diabetes, and experiencing perinatal stress. Um, for those infants, glucose gel was administered as a first-line intervention with blood glucose levels less than 35 milligrams per deciliter, um, 30 minutes after the neonate's first feeding. Um, they followed the standard dose described in the Harris study, which was 0.2 grams of glucose per kilogram of body weight, and with the standard glucose gel that is half a milliliter per kilo. Um, and this is the same um, 0.2 grams glucose per kilogram that's used in IV glucose treatment. Through April um, 2000, or in April of 2014, they trained all of their staff members who were working in labor and birth unit and the postpartum unit with a one-hour educational presentation. Um, this covered the rationale for the change, the pathophysiology of neonatal hypoglycemia results of the Harris study, step-by-step -step introduction to the new glucose algorithm. Um, they had samples of the gel to pass around, and they also reviewed how to obtain heel stick blood samples. Um, they said that the nurses were in general receptive, um, but in the first few weeks they had some challenges. They found that it was most effective to divide the dose by four and administer a quarter into each cheek, rubbing it into the buccal mucosa, um, alternating. And then they said it took about four weeks for most people to be acclimated to the procedure. Um, after they collected their data, they, as I stated in the beginning, they found there was a 73 reduction in neonate admissions to the NICU um, for the primary diagnosis of hypoglycemia. Um, further, they found that most babies with blood glucose levels of 35 received supplementation with formula and were separated from their mothers while, or were separated from their mothers while receiving IV glucose in the NICU. When they did the retrospective part of this study to look back at the babies that had had those interventions before um, they had started this protocol, they were unable to determine the number of those who were exclusively breastfed during that time period. But because the routine was to give routine supplementation a formula um, to those whose levels were less than 40, they think the number was close to zero. Um, and then when it comes to neonates with blood glucose at or less than 25 milligrams per deciliter, um, the AAP recommends IV glucose for those neonates. Um, and their institution would have required NICU admission for all of them. But after they started this protocol of the thousand neonates at risk for hypoglycemia, 49 had initial glucose levels at or less than 25 milligrams per deciliter. Um, these asymptomatic neonates were given a glucose gel and feedings as their first line intervention. 17 of the 49 were eventually admitted to the NICU but only nine of those for the diagnosis of hypoglycemia. There were other problems like um, hypothermia, for example. Hmm. And before this intervention, all 49 of those would have been admitted to the NICU. 
So I found this to be a really um, interesting intervention that um, decreased the admissions to the NICU and also increased the um, percentage of babies who were exclusively breastfed um, during the hospital period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting. Um, a lot of things went through my mind as I heard about that, particularly substitutes for this gel. So one thing is that a lot of babies take sweeties, you know, like when they have circumcisions. And do you know how it, that compares to sweeties, which is obviously more of a liquidy sugar? That's is, a really interesting question that I don't know the answer to. I suspect that it is a much lower... Um, Amount. Oh, I'm going to have to go and investigate that now. I didn't go into the specifics of it, but in both of these studies, they did talk about um, monitoring for um, rebound hypoglycemia, which yeah, turned yeah. out to not be an issue. In the initial study, they actually used the type of continuous glucose monitor in the thigh of the infant that um, some diabetics use um, okay. to monitor for that over the full, you know, first week of life. And they did a lot to make sure that the, the study was safe. Yeah. And then someone on LACNET um, brought up an issue of whether or not it would change gut flora um, as much as formula would. I would think that maybe it wouldn't because sugar. One of, yeah, one of the points in the little review of the breastfeeding literature was this um, point about how just one bottle of formula can change gut flora and induce allergies in susceptible infants. And I think that at least the, the um, question of allergies um, would be improved. Right. And, and then gut flora would not be affected in the same way that formula would. Yeah, it would seem to me not. And then the other thing is, if we think about alternatives using dextrose gel, um, I'm the medical director of the Mother's Milk Bank of the Western Great Lakes. And I, we were, I was just talking to our medical director, uh, to our um, executive director today about um, providing, about sort of the whole idea of lactoengineering and using this donor milk in a way that hospitals really need it, you know, in an optimal way. And maybe what we need to do is provide donor milk in aliquots of like 5 ml, 10 ml as an option to um, help with neonatal hypoglycemia as opposed to using sugar gel, you know, just giving, as opposed to giving formula, taking out formula and giving that, perhaps um, finger feeding um, or using a feeding tube at the breast for babies who are actually nursing to see if they could just get a, um, you know, a dose of donor milk. Yeah. And then... So all of these babies were fed after they were given the buccal um, um, glucose, and uh -huh. some of them were formula fed. And so I think, I think it's really interesting. It would be interesting to go and look at the sort of calculations of how much glucose is in the milk or formula and how well it's absorbed. Because one of the reasons this intervention is effective is because giving it in the buccal mucosa, similarly to giving sublingual medications, mm -hmm. it's absorbed at a rate that's similar to IV. Right. Um, Glucose and even, you know, this is, it was shown to decrease the hypoglycemia in babies that were formula fed as well. So it's not always that, you know, the babies aren't getting breast milk. It's that they've got a, you know, hyperinsulinism because yeah. they have a mom or something else. And so I think there's a place for both. 
for like the more secure, yeah. right? For those babies that would end up in the NICU or maybe SGA or preterm or hypoglycemic have had some other stressors. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's nice to think that we could keep those babies with their mamas. Right. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I really like that. I've, um, our, one of our doctors in town who's a neonatal hospitalist thought that this was going to be the way of the future, which makes sense because it's so much less laborious, you know, and then there's always that risk of not getting an IV in and then taking that risk of more prolonged hypoglycemia. So it's also a faster intervention. So you have less risk yeah, of, really you know, expensive. it's much, much cheaper much than cheaper, right. and yeah. it can be used in an impoverished setting. And so I think it's going to really, um, help in, you know, some less wealthy settings than the ones that we're practicing in. Right. And in addition, you don't have the rebound. So with the IV, once you start the IV glucose, you need to taper down, which necessitates a stay for a while. Um, whereas it sounds like with the with the um, dextrose gel, you don't need to worry as much about that. Yeah, it was interesting. This study was brought to my attention, um, actually, by one of the lactation consultants in my institution. And we're participating in a statewide collaborative to improve um, hospital practices related to supporting breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited to see, um, I'm taking it to my pediatric hospitalist journal club next month, um, whether or not we might change some of our protocols and I will let you know what happens. Yeah. I'm wondering if anyone in, in, um, if anyone in the United States or elsewhere is actually using this other than just for studies. So it'd be well, great if people... This was the um, policy change in Chicago at Northwestern that led to the second study, and that is their policy now. Oh, it is their policy. Right. Okay, great. Wow, very good. They're trendsetters. Right. They're leading the way to us. Yes, great. Well, that's all good info. So um, in our next podcast, hopefully, uh, Karen and I will go through the abstracts of the research that uh, that was presented at the International Society for the blah, 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 the Ishmael group, the human milk and breastfeeding research group. It's called Ishmael. Um, I, don't, I can't remember exactly what that acronym stands for, um, but it was published in Breastfeeding Medicine Journal recently. And uh, we will go through those um, studies because some of them are fascinating, very clinically applicable. Well, enjoy the spring. Enjoy the uh, apple blossoms and down in uh, Washington D.C. They're cherry blossoms. Cherry blossoms. That's right. We have apple blossoms. <laughs> blossoms here too. But all right. Talk to you later, Karen. Bye. Take care. Bye. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy f as in frank med dot org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.